It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, we have a conversation with Mark Short, uh, the former chief for uh, Mike Pence when he was vice president, longtime uh, consultant ally and and, uh, someone who uh, worked for Pence throughout his tenure in multiple roles in politics. Uh, Mark Short gives us his perspective on the different factors that went into the election outcome uh, on Tuesday and a number of lessons that Republicans ought to be able to take away from it. He also talks to us about the remaining lingering factor of January 6th and the decision that the vice president made on that date, one which obviously uh, made him uh, have to suffer a lot of wrath from supporters of former President Trump. Mark Short coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Mark Short, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, thanks for having me today. Look, I I think that Republicans across the country are unpacking everything that they saw from these election results, election results that surprised a lot of people. Uh, And I know that you've been out there and and speaking, sharing your perspective on things. But, you know, fundamentally, when you look at a midterm election, if you are on the right side of the, you know, sort of right track, wrong track position and the popularity of the president, you expect to have a big result in your favor historically. Why did not that not come to pass when it came to this election? Well, Ben, I think you're exactly right that with uh, President Biden's approval rating down somewhere in the upper 30s to low 40s, a series of issues that were clearly in Republicans' favor from the worst inflation in 40 years to voters expressing concern about a crisis at the border to many of our biggest cities facing crime waves they've not seen in decades Uh, The wind was at our backs, and it should have been a much better and decisive victory for Republicans across the board. I don't think it was ever going to be like 2010 when we won 63 seats in the House because, frankly, a lot of the low-hanging fruit Republicans had won in the 2020 election cycle. There was so much coverage on the presidential race, but the fact was we'd actually picked up 14 House seats. And so we were coming from from a much different baseline Nonetheless, I think a lot of us expected still somewhere in the 20 to 25 neighborhood of pickups in the House, a likely pickup in the Senate. And to see that all missed is is a huge disappointment. I think the, the clearest explanation that I can come to for you, Ben, is that the Republicans actually did turn out. The number, the turnout is actually a plus three Republican versus Democrat on Election Day. Uh, Republicans turn out in higher numbers across the country. So you've seen raw vote tallies, about five and a half million more votes to Republican candidates. Yet independents said that 75% said we're going in the wrong direction as a nation, yet they still voted Democrat. 
And I think the only explanation for that is that far too often we had candidates who in the primary stuck with this notion that the 2020 election was stolen. They dug into that deep in the primary, and that was too big of a hole for them to get out. Even with the wind at their backs, it was often things that had been said in the primary and the quality of our candidates hurt us. The issues are still behind us. The reality is, though, we ultimately had candidates, independents looked at and said, I agree. Inflation's out of control. The border's a mess. Crime's a mess. But I'm still going this path because the candidate you gave me is not somebody I can support. You know, one of the things that is difficult about this is it's hard to ask kind of the right question when it comes to that uh, election fraud or, or questions about 2020 stuff. I felt like a lot of people played cute with it. They tried to essentially, you know, make no enemies to their right on the question. But also they tried to sort of dabble in that language in ways that uh, ultimately it seems like hurt them eventually or turned them off with independent voters. Look, there are legitimate concerns about election fraud in America. You know, I think that a lot of people are concerned about the the nature of the policies that were embraced during covid. Um, they, they don't like the fact that we have, you know, 50 days of voting in Pennsylvania where people don't even get to see what John Fetterman is like until the last stages. At the same time, clearly independents, as, as you said, were turned off by this kind of, of dabbling in this stuff. How do you think that Republicans can navigate that as candidates, though, when there's a significant portion of their base, you know, depending on how you measure it, uh, that does share major concerns about this and does feel like either President Biden is illegitimate or that there are significant questions about our voting processes? Well, Ben, I'm not so sure it's that hard. I think you just you did it yourself just in, in 30 seconds. I think the reality is that um, there were things that Democrats took advantage from COVID policies that all of us dislike from ballot harvesting um, to allowing uh, voter voter uh, ballots to, to extend much beyond Election Day. Um, but there were reforms that some Republican governors like in Georgia, Brian Kemp, made that helped that helped change the state election laws. But as conservatives and Republicans, we can say, you know what, let's rally and change the state law that we object to. That's different than saying it was outright stolen. And in fact, candidly, Republicans can clearly point to Democrats and say, you know, all this conversation about us, look at what they did. Look at Stacey Abrams still refusing to admit that she lost. Look at Hillary Clinton saying the election was stolen. Look at the fact that this whole January 6th committee You've had 35 House Democrats in the last three times Republicans have won presidential elections in Bush, Cheney and in Trump, Pence, who voted against certification, including the chairman of the January 6th committee. There's plenty of examples of Democrats doing this. But instead, Republicans, instead of saying, look, they're the ones that claim election theft, we can sit here on principle and say that here are the ways we should be changing state laws. But instead, as you said, we ended up taking the bait and basically re- echoing language that, that the left has used and saying the, the election was stolen. You had to deal with a number of different factors when it came to the post-election environment. Um, and, you know, uh, some of this is in, obviously, Vice President Pence's book uh, about the types of things that were attempted and and the people who were pushing uh, for him to take a different approach. I'm curious about what your response was to that. If you felt like personally you were being put in a position that you never thought you would have to navigate in politics um, and how much that really weighed on you in the moment when there were all these people, 
you know, ostensibly on your side of the political aisle who are pressuring you to do something or to force the vice president to do something that you believed was wrong to do. Well, Ben, I never thought that the um, decision that the vice president had to make was honestly that difficult. I think it's it's black and white as to what the constitutional authority is for the vice president of the United States. And and I think we have a, a whole, you know, hour long conversation on this and I'm going to spare you. But the reality is that, you know, if that is authority a vice president had, then why had no vice president used it in 200 plus years? If that's authority <laughs> Republicans like, would we be so celebrating if Kamala Harris could say in 2024, you know what, I'm going to throw out Texas electoral votes or I'm going to throw out Alabama. Of course, it's absurd on its face. But I think the thing that weighed on us was the reality is that you could still see this train wreck coming. It wasn't a question of what was the right thing to do. I think that that, that was known. It's just like there was a belief, I, I believe, that, you know, for for many times of the four years, the president and vice president had worked so closely together that the two of them had had conversations. And I think that the vice president had been a very positive influence on some of the president's instincts. But I think at this point, this was one that we could not break through on. And I think knowing that heading into January 6th was a belief that a lot of the Trump supporters had been led to believe something that just wasn't going to happen and wasn't true. And that was certainly disappointing. You're a recognizable person. I'm sure people come up to you on the street. They come up to me on the street sometimes. I'm walking around listening to podcasts. They come up and they say things. Um, uh, usually they say complimentary things, which I appreciate. With your own sort of uh, ability to go out, be around normal American people in this uh, in this kind of uh, post-after-action moment, what do people come up and say to you? Do they thank you for the work that you did? Do they hassle you for for being on the opposite side of, of a decision or something like that? What do they say? Well, let's not forget, I live in Arlington, Virginia, where there are not very many normal people. So yeah. let's state that to, to start with. But but I, I will tell you that as you travel, I hear a lot more of uh, people who, um, you know, I, I'd say that in the aftermath of January 6th would, would quietly under their breath say, thank you for the stance that the vice president in your office took. I think they're far more open in that today. Um, they're much more of a of an appreciation and realization of the way that those dynamics have played out nearly two years later and in a in a higher level of gratitude that people express more openly today than perhaps in the immediate aftermath of January 6th when you'd be in Republican audiences and Republicans who knew the reality but I think were afraid of of upsetting somebody that would be a a, a Trump enthusiast um, today it's just a little bit of a different reaction and I and and I hate that Ben because I think the reality is that you know, for four years, the vice president and vice president worked really closely together. My first two years was working directly for the president as head of legislative affairs. And I'm incredibly proud of the tax relief and the judges that we got confirmed and the record and the record, not just those first two years, but the first four years. I mean, it's incredibly proud of that. And I just think it was um, it was a tragic and unfortunate, you know, way for the administration to end. You know, one of the things that's happening now, obviously, is that people have their long knives out for various, uh, you know, people that they blame for this result. Uh, and, uh, you know, the the outcome, whether it's, uh, you know, people are blaming candidates and then blaming Trump or they're blaming money expenditures and then blaming McConnell or Rick Scott, uh, things like that. Who do you actually think, if there is anyone, bears the most blame for this situation that Republicans are currently in? not having maximized what looked to be like a very positive election for all the reasons that you stated before. 
Do you think that there's one person to blame here? Or do you think it's more of a systemic failure on the part of the Republican Party to offer an alternative agenda that people really believed in? Uh, you know, Ben, I, I do think that um, in the vice president uh, with our Advanced American Freedom, we put out a freedom agenda uh, last year that we're very proud of and stood behind. And I think that the vice president always said uh, that he's, he cited the biblical verse that, that where there is no vision, the people perish. And I think it's important for us to have a positive agenda. I don't think you can simply be just against things. I think you have to be for things. And I think that that's a fair critique of what happened. Having said that, I, I'm less inclined to to look to point blame at any one person. I'd say it's it's, in, it's a broader systemic failure in that all of our leadership and our party, I think, was unwilling to address head on uh, the aftermath of January 6th and provide a constructive conversation that says, look, here here's the challenging of ballot harvesting and what it creates as a problem uh, for potential fraud. Here's the problem of, of Wisconsin changing election laws in ways that, that allow you no longer to have to say, here's the explanation for why I couldn't vote in person. Here's the challenge of saying we're going to waive signature matching and say we don't have to do that anymore. And here's a constructive way to change it in the states. But I think by embracing some of the more conspiratorial rhetoric, I think it, it disadvantaged us with many voters. I think the, the, the reality, Ben, is that People were saying that because they were afraid of getting backlash from President Trump. And I and I think that when you're in a leadership position like that, that's what's called on from leaders is to be stand up and say, here's the truth of what happened. Let's move forward and saying we're going to be the party that stands for truth. We're going to fix election reform. But we're also going to fix inflation. We're also going to fix crime. And we're also going to fix the crisis of the border. Vice President Pence is respected for a lot of reasons. He's respected as a deeply uh, a Christian man, a man of faith. He's respected as being a straight shooter. He's respected for the work that he's done for the Republican Party. And yet, after January 6th, I'm sure you've seen that same Real Clear Politics average number where it's just the number drops by like 30 points in terms of, of Republican approval for him. Uh, he's obviously someone who's openly considered as, as being a likely candidate in 2024. What do you think of the vice president? Um, what his greatest attributes are and the challenges that he would have to overcome in convincing a party that, you know, perhaps soured on him to a degree or, you know, uh, blames him, perhaps, you know, in my view, unfairly uh, for things uh, that he's actually the kind of leadership that they need to navigate this moment and into the future. Well, you know, Ben, I think that uh, Mike has always been a standard bearer for conservatism. And when I first began working for him in the 2008 to 2010 election cycle, he was elected into Republican leadership specifically because of his stands against the Bush administration during those first years, 2000 to 2008. And what I mean by that is there's a very small number of House Republicans you can count probably on one hand who actually voted against No Child Left Behind and the expansion of the Education Department, who voted against the Wall Street bailout and TARP, who voted against the, the Republican priority of expansion of entitlements and Medicare Part D, who voted against cash for clunkers. And when the party was going a different You're direction— speaking my language, Mark. <laughs> well, as the party was going a different direction, he was the standard bearer who said yeah. no— we're going to drift. This isn't what conservatism is. And I think, Ben, that's the same thing that happened from a very different perspective in 2020 when there were some who said that that we should be doing this for a power grab when he was saying, no, this is what the Constitution requires of us as conservatives, as limited government conservatives, 
our founders had a very limited role, the federal role. They wanted elections run in the states for a very specific reason. They trusted the states, whereas if it was run and federalized in D.C., it would be easier to abuse the system. And they actually were more concerned about British interference in our elections at the time. But as limited government conservatives, we have to be consistent. And I think that's what Mike Pence has always been. And, you know, I think that he took an approach, Ben, that was like, uh, I've been in the public eye heavily for the last four years. It's appropriate to step back. And I think as you see his book launching this week, you're going to see him resurface in a much more public way. So I kind of dismiss whatever whatever some of those numbers are as to where he ranks, because in some individual polling that we've seen in individual states, the reason he was so attractive on the campaign stump this cycle was because they're like, you actually unify the different factions of our party. Mm-hmm. From, whether, from all different parts of our party, it's like there's a there's a common admiration for him. And so I think that uh, you're just going to see that continue, that trend continue in the, in the next uh, year, two years ahead. Well, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if the lesson coming out of this election cycle is that people like a more populist form of conservatism, which I think, you know, you clearly see in the results in a lot of these different state level races, you know, whether it's Florida or whether it's Nevada, you know, somebody like uh, Joe Lombardo winning, you know, this is uh, this is a more populist conservatism, but they also seem to generally want real confidence in the person uh, confidence that they're not going to be a chaotic force, that they're not going to be a sideshow. There's someone, you know, like governor DeSantis who can, you know, build a bridge in three days and handle a response to a hurricane and that kind of thing. It, in this in in this particular time, what do you think that Republicans should take as a lesson about the need for that kind of presence on the campaign trail, as opposed to a populism that's driven by celebrity or by you know uh, you know being media figures or something like that? Well, you know, I'd say back in 2016, a lot of uh, the former vice president's closest allies advised him not to join the ticket. But I think because he was there in the Midwest, he could see the connection that Donald Trump had with so many voters in Michigan Mm -hmm. and in Ohio and in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin. And it was alive in Indiana as well. And so I I probably believe that the populism that Donald Trump has brought in is a positive influence. We as a party should embrace it and expand our party. But I'd also turn you to a speech the vice president recently gave at the Heritage Foundation where he cautioned that that sort of um, siren song of populism unmoored from conservative principles is our danger. So we should embrace the addition that populist brings, whether or not it's on issues of trade, issues of the border, um, issues of how we should how we should be handling China. But we need to make sure that our conservative movement doesn't get led astray from that attraction and instead stays moored in our conservative principles that have been long held. That, that's a risk because I have seen as well some of our conservative flagship institutions that have, I think, become so attracted by the populist approach have actually drifted away from the principles that they've, they've held for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, populism is meant to modify the conservatism. It's meant to sort of... Uh, rejigger the pro- the the uh, priority list where you you know you raise China up, you raise the border issues up, um, uh, as opposed to necessarily 
changing what the conservative answer is, because I don't think that there were a lot of conservatives out there. You know, maybe back in the 90s, there were some free market conservatives who thought that most favored nation status would result in a different China. You know, it didn't take very long for us to learn that that was not the case. And certainly in recent years, that has clearly not been the case. You know, the, the thing that I hope is is the direction that people would take after this election is to sort of sit down and say, look, you know, we, we can't drift away from the principles that have pretty consistently, you know, put Republicans in the driver's seat in uh, American history, you know, in the principles that guided the 1994 revolution, that guided the Tea Party revolution in 2010, you know, you can't just ditch those uh, and and replace them with essentially nothing other than following that populist energy. It, it, how do we actually get back to the point where that is what is guiding us as opposed to necessarily just chasing whatever the flavor of the day is on social media and the like, uh, the priorities of people that don't seem to be, as you said, you know, connected to that guiding light of conservatism. I'll keep preaching it, Ben. I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I sadly think something sometimes what's really needed um, to help bring you back again to that standard bearer is candidly sometimes losing. Mm -hmm. And I think losing elections, you shouldn't lose. And I think that that can help people, you know, reoriented to say, you know what, we need to go back to, to what has been working for us, as you said, whether it was the 94 cycle or the 2010 cycle in which Republicans were true conservatives. And we, we provided that that serious alternative as opposed to embracing some of the, the candidates this cycle who are more performance artists than they really were truly Republican or truly conservative or in some cases, frankly, were Democrats just a few years ago or community organizers for Barack Obama who now we've embraced as the, you know, is the highlight for, for our, for our new populist approach. And so I think that that's what it, that's what it takes is losing a couple of those. And that will, that'll reorient our voters and saying, you know what, it's more fun to win. Mark won't say it. So I will, he's talking about Kerry Lake. <laughs> so um, the, the, the thing that I, the thing that I'm interested in now is we've come, we've come through this election period where we have this surprising result where I think if you had told me before the election, this is the number Republicans are going to hit. This is what they're going to get from Hispanic voters. This is how they're going to increase, you know, their portion of African-American voters. This is, you know, the, the kind of levels of support they're going to get. I would have looked at it on paper and said, wow, that, you know, they're going to do great. Uh, and instead, you know, you have this kind of frustrating outcome where they hit those marks and still don't do great. Getting back to first principles, how do you go about doing it? One of the things that I like to ask people is what books they advise folks to read that have been really important to them or that have been meaningful to them uh, in guiding their own political philosophies, the things that they uh, conclude about the way that, that uh, the republic ought to work uh, and that the priorities of conservatism ought to be ordered. What's something that you would be advising people to return to or take a second look at these days in order to kind of reset their approach and understand what the, their priorities ought to look like going forward? Well, I, I think your question is a good one because it, it helps to, you know, share from the candidate kind of where they come from philosophically. But I'd also say that, you know, I think that a lot of our governors did better this cycle because they had records to run on. 
Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's DeSantis in Florida or Kemp in Georgia or Abbott in Texas, that certainly was was a place for us to look as, as a highlight to say, you know what, if we actually have a record that you can stand behind, then it's less about the performance art. It's less about your position about whether the 2020 election was stolen. It's like, well, look, this is actually what I did for you. And I think that the nowhere is at, at, at better display than in, than in Georgia, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, Kemp is often overlooked in this conversation. But you know, Brian was actually the very first governor to open up. If you remember, Donald Trump stood at the podium and condemned Brian Kemp for saying you're opening up your state too soon. And I and I know there's there's a lot of uh, media focus on on really how well Governor DeSantis did in handling COVID, but but Brian had a record to be able to say, here's what I did on taxes, here's what I did in opening up our state, here's what I've done as far as election reform. And I think that that's, that's, you know, a way for our voters to say it's less of what you're saying actually on the trail. You actually have a record to stand behind. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think that one of the things that we have to appreciate about this moment is uh, that, you know, whenever you get something wrong, I think you should reexamine your priors, you know, take a, take a beat, reassess. You don't want to get on tilt by leaning too far into the take that you had previously. Um, and I think of that too, you know, when it comes to the blame that people are going to place on Mitch McConnell or on Donald Trump. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, we'll, we'll see play out in the media sphere, uh, coming forward, but it's going to be something that's going to be very interesting and, and perhaps reset a lot of things, uh, a lot of assumptions that people have about the Republican coalition generally. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, it's an honor. Great to see you. So I see that there are a number of people out there who are defending Mitch McConnell's approach to these midterms, saying that he deserves less blame than former President Trump, uh, given that uh, the former president obviously made a a major impact on the decisions uh, made within primaries to choose a number of different Republican candidates in critical Senate contests. Uh, This is obviously something that happens after every election that doesn't go the way that people would like to see it go. But I have to say that the idea that Mitch McConnell is someone who is blameless, an idea that has been advocated for in the pages of the Wall Street Journal and an editorial at National Review and Mark Thiessen's uh, column at the Washington Post, is absolutely laughable. You you are not a serious political person if you think that Mitch McConnell should escape any kind of blame for this election cycle. Uh, A big factor in this election cycle was the Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which spent enormous amounts of money in lots of different ways uh, and played uh, or tried to play in primaries uh, in ways that the NRSC under Rick Scott's leadership did not. Mitch McConnell is really old, when it comes to the political game. He's not just old in terms of his age, he's old in terms of the way he spends money. He doesn't believe that you should spend money really before Labor Day. He thinks of elections as being things that break late, and he essentially sits on his cash until that point and then makes decisions. And those decisions are often based not on whether you're going to try to elect a Republican senator or not, but on whether you're going to elect a senator who approves of Mitch McConnell or not. That's one of the reasons why you have the discombobulation of him spending millions of dollars against Don Bolduck in the primary in New Hampshire, then spending millions of dollars for Don Bolduck, then pulling all of the money late because he, Don Bolduck said something not nice about Mitch McConnell. This is a situation that's played out over and over and over again, and it's really high time that Republicans confront it. Mitch McConnell spends money as if this is still the 1980s, as opposed to a situation where 
The people on the other side, fueled by the money from Chuck Schumer, are spending money early to define candidates and define them negatively in the in the minds of voters. Something that worked out for Chuck Schumer across the board when it came to so many different senatorial candidates this cycle. Mitch McConnell may not be the ultimate reason that a lot of these candidates got selected, but he is the reason that money didn't get spent in places that it was needed. The idea that he's spending millions of dollars on a race that is effectively between two Republicans in Alaska and denying that same money to Blake Masters in Arizona when Peter Thiel, the billionaire, had had guaranteed, had, uh, had agreed to uh, spend money if it was going to be matched by McConnell is just ridiculous. Does the guy even want to win? Or is the point of achieving a majority simply to make sure that he is the leader in charge of it? Look, McConnell is best, as I've said before, at doing nothing. When he has to sit on his hands and do nothing, as he did in the case of Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court, he's great at that. What he's bad at is winning elections and winning primary elections as well. And, you know, in this situation where he was unable to recruit a lot of people, who he would like to have gotten into various races, including people like Governor Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. The fact that he plays things the way that he does has ended up with him as, once again, being a minority leader in a Senate. He would rather be the king of a small hill than actually lead this party in a new direction. I think that, unfortunately for Republicans, they are now past the point where they can avoid addressing this issue. It is the elephant in the room. He is out of step, out of his time, and totally disconnected from any kind of policy achievements or advancement. He exists only to approve nominees. That's what he's good at. And that's the kind of thing that, frankly, we should be looking at at this moment and saying, that's just not good enough. We need generational change in Washington all around in the presidency and the speakership and in the leadership of the Senate. And this is undeniable at this point. We can't have a people we can't have people in charge of the political spending of the Republican Party who are still spending money as if we're in a pre-iPhone, pre-social media, pre-internet era. That's just not a political reality anymore. And it's why Mitch McConnell is a minority leader once again. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to the Ben Dominich Podcast, brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. It's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.